Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area... Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. This week, we've got a real caper happening. What is our episode, Donna? We are ready to discuss circumstantial evidence. The air date was February 24th, 1982, written by Tim Reed and PJ Tarakvi as Peter Tarakvi. Story consultant, Lisa Levin, directed by Frank Bonner. Venus's girlfriend gives him a diamond earring. She then excuses herself from the room and leaves the station. The next day, the police visit the station to question Venus. The earring she gave him was stolen, and they think Venus is the thief. This episode is heavy. It almost feels like it could be an hour police procedural. There's a reason for that. Tim Reed spoke extensively about this episode in the Michael Castle book, America's Favorite Radio Station. He said he wrote the episode along with P.J. Tarakvi, basing it on an actual case from Texas. A black man was sentenced to life in prison for a crime he did not commit. He was put away based on questionable eyewitness testimony. Reed said this episode was written to shine a light on the deadly serious side of that old stereotype, they all look alike. Tim said he'd originally intended the story to play as an hour. If not all one night, he saw it at least as a two-parter. He had the green light for the longer format after the story was first pitched. At the last minute... The network pulled the plug on the expanded story. He was forced to condense the original down to a single half hour, so less than 25 minutes of storytelling space. Reed said he felt like they had to cram a lot in. The story was rushed and the ending never quite suited him. Even with the serious undertones, Reed said he was proud of the laughs they were able to find in this serious subject matter. This episode also features Daphne Maxwell, who would later become Daphne Reed. We first saw Daphne on WKRP as co-host of the Real Families episode. We made an incorrect statement during that podcast episode. We said the Real Families ep was when the future Mr. and Mrs. Reed first met. This is not the case, as I later discovered in the book Tim and Tom. Daphne Maxwell is from Chicago. She and Tim had crossed paths both personally and professionally throughout the 1970s while in Chicago. Tom Dreesen had a print ad from 1972 showing both Tim and Daphne posing together for a magazine ad in Chicago. Although they knew each other, their Chicago-era relationship was professional and only in passing. The relationship never became romantic because... They were both married at the time. By the early 80s, both Reed and Maxwell were divorced. Maxwell had also made the move from Chicago to L.A. She found work modeling and acting. One of her early jobs was the WKRP appearance, which allowed her to rekindle her acquaintance with Reed. Maxwell tells the story in Tim and Tom about meeting Reed for what was supposed to be a 10-minute drink. Five hours later, they were having breakfast and still laughing their butts off. She fascinated Reed because she wasn't consumed by her career the way he was. Reed started using his new Writers Guild Association card as a way to see Daphne. He would write scripts containing a black female character role, just perfect for Ms. Maxwell. This is one of his stories that made it to production. Reed said he's particularly proud of this script because of the level of humor they were able to mine from a pretty dire place. 
Now, 40 years later, the prison jokes sound well-worn, but at the time, Reed said nobody was doing those kinds of jokes. He particularly mentioned our line of the episode, so be listening for that. The end where Venus prays was also heavily influenced by Reed's personal life and personal beliefs. He said Hugh Wilson gave him a lot of leeway when it came to letting Venus talk about his beliefs. The spiritualism of Venus was grounded in the life and study of Tim Reed. So hang on, fellow babies, as we get into this heavy half-hour hour co-written by Venus and directed by Herb. Surely. We begin this episode with an outside evening shot of Cincinnati from across the river looking to the northeast. This is one of the light-up Cincinnati shots that Bob Girding told us about during our visit. The video washes out a lot of the detail, but if you freeze this shot on a decent screen, you can see how many lights are on in the riverfront buildings. Had you been listening in February of 1982, you'd have heard Take My Heart by Cool and the Gang playing out over the nighttime airwaves. Originally, we'd have heard a talk bit from Venus where he name-checks both songs in the break as we fade into the studio. We pulled the original audio for this scene from the Big D, Dale Kovar's set, of recreated discs. It sounded like this the night it first aired. You're listening to the voice of Mr. J.T. Taylor of Cool in the Gang, something entitled Take My Heart. This is Venus, my children, here to fill your hearts with the saxy sound of the great Tom Scott. Something entitled, We Belong Together. Let the church say amen. But that's not what's on the Shout Factory disc. And what's there, it turns out, is pretty interesting. It's also something we missed back in season three. Yep, in the first ten seconds of this one, I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole. Hang on, fellow babies, and follow along. We'll get through this together. Okay, so Shout Factory couldn't clear the Cool and the Gang cut we were supposed to hear right at the open of this episode. Since Venus name-checked both songs and they mixed under his voice, it turned into a messy editing assignment. They couldn't mention the Cool and the Gang song, so the talk bit mentioning both songs got cut. What's there is really Venus's voice, so it's not a recut. I finally figured out what they did here to cover. Venus's talk bit sounded familiar. Give a listen. This is what he says at the top of this episode on the Shout Factory disc. This is Venus, my children. Here we sit. And let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness in the night become the touches of sweet harmony. <laughs> was certain I'd heard him do that one before. I did a tech search on our past scripts. Hey, we have heard that one before. At the beginning of the season three episode, The Baby, there's a commercial for an at-home announcer course. Venus comes out of the ad with his announcer pride a bit hurt. So he launches into this smoking talk bit. We're in the white pages, the Mike Wallace School of Broadcasting, not affiliated with the guy on 60 Minutes. <laughs> this is Venus, my children. Here we sit. And let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness in the night become the touches of sweet harmony. See if you can learn that at home, chump. Sound familiar? It's not just the same script, it's the exact same recording. They reused what must have been a clean talk bit. It was perfect because it didn't have background music, and he didn't mention any specific songs or artists. Shout Factory figured they could get away with reusing this snippet of voiceover to cover an edit here, more than 30 episodes later. Discovering they'd reused a piece of audio from earlier in the series was fun but not nearly as cool as the other thing we discovered. Since I had the text string already typed and copied, I went ahead and dropped it into a Google search string. I was surprised to discover this is not a Venus original. We missed it during the baby, so we're catching up here. This quote is lifted almost word for word from William Shakespeare's 16th century comedy, The Merchant of Venice. 
In the first scene of the fifth act, Lorenzo is speaking to Jessica when he says, How sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank. Here will we sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness and the night become the touches of sweet harmony. Venus should really be crediting his quotes. This is also not the first reference the show has made to the Merchant of Venice. There was Herb's client, the Merchant of Venice Pawn Shop, who he mentioned at the start of Mike Fright. Mr. Provansky owns and operates the Merchant of Venice Pawn Shop. Merchant of Venice. <laughs> they are all over town. And get this. He is planning to open one up in Akron. <laughs> Akron, I'm not kidding. All right, but enough with the rabbit hole. Back in the studio, it's dark. No one is in the booth, and the turntables are empty. The camera does a zoom to the reel-to-reel tape player through the window back in production. It's rolling. Venus is running a voice track. In the original airing, we hear Venus's voice from the tape introducing the next song titled We Belong Together by Tom Scott. The song we didn't get to hear in Venus's talk bit was Take My Heart from Cool and the Gang's 13th studio album, Something Special. Although Cool and the Gang's most remembered for celebration, we don't want to forget they were responsible for 30 Hot 100 hits throughout the 70s and 80s. This one would go to number 17 in October of 1981. Anytime is the right time, baby. Come on and take my heart. It's all yours if you want it, baby. My heart is tearing all apart. I say, you can have it. Yeah. If you want it. If you want it. Come and get it, baby. But if you want it. This cut also spends 17 weeks on the Hot 100. Venus goes into We Belong Together by sax player Tom Scott. This is still another cut from Scott's 1981 live album, Apple Juice. Scott is the session sax player who's played with everyone and seems to know somebody at MTM. (laughs) We first heard him on WKRP during the episode Rumors. Then again in the record library scene of Changes, and now here. Scott has added his smooth tenor sax to dozens of radio hits, but nothing from this album will even crack the Hot 100. We're curious how this album wound up with three tracks on WKRP. To not be a rock guy, Tom Scott is getting a ton of coverage on KRP. It's weird how much he's getting. Because of Venus's show, Jazzy Show. It must be, and I don't know if somebody knows him. Maybe he's a friend of Hugh Wilson's or something, (laughs) but... Wow, he got a lot of coverage. We do a cross-dissolve from the reel-to-reel into a very dark bullpen. There are candles and lamps providing some dim light. We can see bottles of alcohol and glasses on the DJ's desk. As our eyes adjust to the dark, we see Venus and a very pretty young woman sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. Venus is pouring some wine into their glasses. The woman takes a sip. Nice choice. Yeah. Come here. I've got something for you. Venus sets his glass down and he leans closer to the woman. He's thinking kiss, but she presents him with a small jewelry box. Venus looks inside. Oh, this is nice. Nothing but the best for the people I care about. You mean this is a gift? Of course, silly. She then drops a sly quote from the 1981 film noir, Body heat. You're not too perceptive. I like that in a man. Lawrence Kasdan directed Body Heat from the previous year would be Kathleen Turner's film debut. After first meeting William Hurt's character, she says almost the same line. You're not too smart, are you? (laughs) 
I like that in a man. This is Miss Maxwell's second appearance on the show. We first met her in a very different part in the third season episode, Real Families. Herb, Elaine Parker speaking. Yeah. Isn't that a beer can on the night table? What? Isn't that a beer can on the night table? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know what it is. Hi, Herb. Bill Terry. For a bio on Daphne, check that episode of the podcast. If you do go check that episode, ignore our comment about it being where Tim first met her. Venus takes the box, still looking at what's inside. He tells the woman he didn't expect this. I'm full of little surprises. She puts her arm around Venus's neck. It's kind of a forceful move. She kisses him firmly on the lips. Venus leans into the kiss, eagerly pushing the woman down. She gently pushes him away. Hold that thought while I go freshen up. <laughs> Venus sits up and teasingly tells her to hurry back. Venus, I never hurry. Remember that. <laughs> the woman goes to the door. She turns back to Venus before leaving. While I'm gone, why don't you tune up your imagination? <laughs> talk for a minute about the tape Venus is using. This is what's called a voice track. It's a little like a mixtape. You make one the same way you used to make a mixtape, one song at a time, live. The songs had to be played in real time, and the DJ voiceovers had to be done live while the recording tape was still moving. Voice tracks are primarily for emergencies. If a DJ is going to be 15 or 20 minutes late for the board shift, the previous operator would be able to get through the top of the hour break and start the next operator's show using a voice track. Back in the days of live air personalities, not every station would allow the use of voice tracking. For perpetually late DJs, voice tracks would become a crutch. If a station had voice tracks, they were usually sitting on a rack somewhere in the live booth, so they were easy to get to. For a pop or top 40 station, air people had to keep their voice tracks up to date with current music. These days, voice tracks are digital. Talk bits can be recorded on their own, then dropped in at the right spots between songs by the computer. This is actually how most radio shows are done nowadays. Even live shows aren't truly live. The producer or board op will time shift talk bits, call-in segments, and interviews so they can be edited before they are played back on the air. If you've ever talked to a radio show at 7.08 but not heard your call until 7.45, that's why. Your comment was edited, maybe cut for time, took out a few ums and pauses. Then the DJ had a snappy, funny line, which he maybe added a couple minutes later. The segment is edited so it sounds perfect, and it gets played back neatly between spots or other segments. Not much of what you hear on air, especially in big markets, is truly live anymore. We transition to inside the darkened studio. Andy walks casually by the studio window out in the hall, and he glances in as he passes. He stops and looks more closely, realizing the studio is empty. Uh-oh. <laughs> in the bullpen, Venus is sitting with his eyes closed. He's not sleeping because we see him grinning, and his eyebrows are bouncing up and down a few times. He seems to <laughs> truly be tuning up his imagination, while waiting on his lady friend to return. Andy walks in quietly. Holding a glass of something, he has his seat next to Venus. Andy puts his hand on Venus's leg. Venus, eyes still closed, smiles. He puts his hand on Andy's. Realizing something's not right, Venus feels Andy's wrist. Then his lower arm, his upper arm. Andy, what are you doing in here? <laughs> Andy tells Venus he was looking for him. What are you doing holding a seance? Of course not. <laughs> Having a meeting. Andy chuckles and asks Venus, with who? My spiritual advisor. Venus stands. Andy asks where she is. Interesting, Andy assumes this spiritual advisor is female. Mm-hmm. Venus asks, what's up with all the questions? I'm the inquisitive type. Listen, I don't suppose I could have a little bit of that there holy water? I want you promise to drink it in your office. Andy tells Venus he's got a deal. Venus pours some wine into Andy's coffee cup. Andy thanks Venus as he heads to the door. Andy turns to look back at Venus. By the way, I want to tell you that for the last uh, 
hour, you've been in violation of um, Title 47 CFR Section 73.1201. Venus looks at Andy. What does that mean? Yeah, simply stated, if you don't hurry up and put on a station ID, KRP could lose its license, and you... Your job. The gobbledygook Andy was spouting is, in reality, the federal statute regarding radio station identification. CFR stands for Code of Federal Regulations. CFR Title 47, Chapter 1, Subchapter C, Part 73, Subpart H, <laughs> Paragraph 73.1201, is titled Station Identification. It says in part, broadcast station announcements shall be made hourly as close to the hour as feasible at a natural break in program offerings. This paragraph also covers the content of the announcement, which is basically call letters and city of license. Morning, Morning, Johnny. When it comes to legal things DJs have to do, this is one of the most basic and important. Being able to quote the statute? Is impressive, Mr. Travis. Quite impressive. He's amazing. We see Venus start to dart out of the bullpen heading to the studio when he suddenly stops. He slowly saunters over to the door leading to the studio hallway. He puts one hand on the door jam and leans on it. One should never hurry, Andy. Remember that. Venus calmly leaves the bullpen as we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. Come back in the hallway outside of the studio. There's a quarter flash poster through the door at the end of the hallway, and the Ringo stand up is still directing traffic just inside the door. The song Mental Hopscotch by Missing Persons is playing over the monitors. Venus and Johnny are talking as they come through the doorway at the end of the hall. Well, I can't figure it out. Well, man, maybe you just frighten her off with your animal magnetism. <laughs> Maybe she got uh, kidnapped by aliens on her way to Washington. Venus rolls his eyes, giving Johnny a fed-up look. Johnny tells Venus, eh, maybe the woman decided she hated him and split. Are you kidding? First of all, the woman doesn't get scared. Second, she comes up here dressed really dangerous, brings me champagne, gives me a gift. Venus leans down, putting his left ear right next to Johnny's face. Check out the dollar value of this, huh? I tell you, if it ain't love, it's a vicious case of like. <laughs> Johnny takes Venus's earlobe and looks closely at it. The song we're hearing was a local number one on K-Rock in Los Angeles, but most of the rest of the world missed it. It's called Mental Hopscotch by the band Missing Persons. Missing Persons was led by female singer and co-founder Dale Bazio. She and her husband Terry Bazio had contributed extensively to Act One of Frank Zappa's rock opera, Joe's Garage. It's where they met, formed a band, and married. The EP this song came from was recorded in Zappa's new studios in 1980. Missing Persons had the reputation as a must-see band in the L.A. area in the early 80s. Their self-promoted four-song EP sold 7,000 copies and led to the band being signed by Capitol in 1982. Interesting tidbit about lead singer Dale, she was a former Playboy bunny from Boston. Andy comes through the doorway at the end of the hall. He walks towards Venus and Johnny as Johnny is still checking out the gift Venus got from the night before. Now that's what I like to see. One man admiring another man's earrings. <laughs> <laughs> Venus and Johnny back away from each other. Venus asks Andy if he saw a girl last night. As a matter of fact, I did in my apartment. It's quite funny. <laughs> now Venus means around the station. Oh, you mean that I see your guru? Andy continues on into the bullpen. Johnny and Venus follow. Venus asks again. If Andy saw her. No. Before we leave the studio hallway, we have one quick poster to talk about. On the wall to the right is a cutout for the Sammy Hagar album, Standing Hampton. This was the Red Rocker's sixth studio album and his first after moving from Capitol Records to Geffen. It had been out about a month here, released in January of 1982. Sammy was the front man for Montrose from 1973 until 1975. 
Then, in 1985, he takes over from David Lee Roth as frontman for Van Halen. During the decade between, Sammy moved some serious product as a solo act. This album went to number 28 on the U.S. album chart. It also featured five singles. None of them would crack the top 40, but I'll Fall in Love Again came close. It peaks at number 43 on the U.S. Hot 100. This album would also spawn a major Sammy anthem. The British version of this album included a bonus 45 called Conversations with Sammy Hagar. We've never heard it, but we're betting they talked about tequila and hair care products. Moving into the bullpen, Les, Herb, and Bailey are all gathered around Herb's desk looking at some papers when Johnny, Venus, and Andy enter. They hear the tail end of the conversation, and they want to know who Venus is asking about. Venus lost a girl. Les, Bailey, and Herb stand up from looking at the papers. This sounds interesting. Lost a girl? When? Last night. Why would you want to do that? I didn't. I mean, I didn't exactly lose her. It was more of a case she dumped him. <laughs> and now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Right? Temple. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Herb asks, what happened? Well, Johnny's only too happy to fill everyone in. Seems our man was having a romantic interlude, and she went to the washroom. Herb's nodding his head knowingly. Venus is staring at Herb. Used to happen to me all the time. She'd take her purse? Venus tells Herb, yeah, she did. Herb explains if they take their purse, they aren't coming back. That's why I always try to get their car keys. <laughs> and that was my vote for line of the episode. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Bailey asks Venus if he went after her. He says he did. In the ladies' room. Venus says, yeah. Venus. <laughs> I knocked first. Good golly. Venus decides... This is a good time to mess with Les. Very bizarre in there, too. Really? I've never seen anything quite like it in my life. Really? Excuse me. Les leaves the bullpen quickly. He's on a mission. Bailey tells Venus maybe he was coming on a bit too hard. Venus doesn't think this is the problem. Actually, she was coming on. I was still trying to tune up my imagination. Now I'm all tuned up, no place to show. Jennifer comes into the bullpen, followed by two men in suits. Venus, these are Sergeants Alcorn and Davies. Johnny looks up, concerned. Air Force? Police. Traffic? <laughs> Johnny grabs his jacket and hilariously covers his face with it. He slinks out of the bullpen. <laughs> One of the officers has grabbed Venus by the arm. Also known as Venus Flytrap. Mm, Venus tells him, yeah. What's this all about? Crime. The burglary of a wholesale jeweler in this building. Are you familiar with a woman named Jessica Langtree? Uh-oh. Venus tells the officers yes and asks where she is. They tell him she is in custody. Venus is shocked. Custody for what? Detective Davies is being played by John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon is one of those actors you know, but he never really had a breakout starring role. Spoon, as he was known to friends and co-workers, was born in Detroit in 1942. He would rack up more than 80 actor credits on his IMDb profile over a 43-year career. He and Ice Cube are the only two performers to appear in all three Friday movies. Spoon first appeared on The Richard Pryor Show as an uncredited background performer. Interesting to note, a young actor and writer named Tim Reed was also working on The Richard Pryor Show at the same time as Spoon. 
They even appeared in the same episodes. John Witherspoon died of a heart attack in Sherman Oaks, California, in October of 2019. He was 77 years old. Detective Alcorn is being played by Michael Pataki. Now, you might recognize Mr. Pataki. Not only does he have 187 performer credits, he was also on WKRP in another role back in Season 2. It's Ivan. Michael played the much-beloved defector, Ivan Papa... Uh, Ivan Papa's uh, Papa son of uh... <laughs> Ivan Papa Sonavisky. Yeah, that's it. From the Americanization of Ivan. For a look at Michael's bio and a fun show, make sure to check our Americanization of Ivan episode of the podcast. The other officer takes Venus's other arm. Mr. Sims, you're under arrest. Johnny's arm comes through the studio <laughs> hallway door. He is gripping his jacket in his hand as he shakes a pointer finger in the direction of the officers. Hey, you guys need a warrant for that? Andy leans on the DJ's desk and he looks at the police. Yeah, you got a warrant for this? Of course we have a warrant. We're professionals. The officer reaches into his back pocket and pulls out some handcuffs. They have Venus put his hands behind behind his back, and they cuff him. Is that really necessary? The officer tells Jennifer it is. The other officer begins reading Venus his rights. Venus is staring at the officer in disbelief. The door from the studio hallway opens, and Art walks in. Oh, hi, everybody. Carlson walks by Venus, not really looking at him. Hey, Venus. Hi, Mr. Carlson. How's it going? Real good. Well, good. (laughs) Carlson crosses quickly in front of the camera, crosses back, then leaves the bullpen. Either he's oblivious to what's happening, or he's quickly assessed the situation and decided it's time to get out of there. He's oblivious. Yeah, probably oblivious. (laughs) There's a quick cut to an outside shot of a very tall, gray, concrete, government-looking building. Police are coming in and out of the front door. We were hoping this might be a Bob Girding exterior from Cincinnati, but it's not. This is the City Hall in Los Angeles, located at 200 North Spring Street. It's about a 20-minute drive from the Radford Studios. The screen dissolves into a shot of Johnny on the phone looking through a window at Venus, who has a phone up to his ear. Johnny is wearing a beard (laughs) as a disguise, and it's pretty hilarious. What are you doing in that beard? It's part of the disguise, man. He's wearing that beard to disguise him, but he still has his sunglasses and his, his black knit death cap t-shirt and, and the t-shirt. But this giant beard. <laughs> Johnny asked Venus if he got any sleep. Are you kidding? I don't have what you would call great accommodations here. <laughs> this place is a palace compared to where I did time in Mexico, man. I mean, you could barely eat the food. How is the food here now? The last time I was here, I don't care about the food, I- Johnny. I want to get out of here. This place is serious, man. I haven't been here 24 hours yet, and already three guys have asked me to dance. And these guys really want to dance. You understand what I'm saying? Venus is very intense, which brings us to... The line of the episode. I mean, if I'm not out of here soon, I'm going to become one great boxer or one hell of a great dancer. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a line that Tim Reed actually talked about in America's Favorite Radio Station. (laughs) So Johnny tells Venus they tried to get him out yesterday, and they will bail him out today. But you have got a lot of legal problems. Venus is getting upset. He asked Johnny, what kind of legal problems? I haven't done anything. Johnny tells Venus it's this girlfriend of his. One of the cops told me they stopped her car, and she had a lot of jewelry. She wasn't wearing it. You know what I mean? It's the loot from the robbery down on the fourth floor. Now Venus is tied in with it, thanks to his lady friend. Because you snuck her into the building past the night guard. But I'm always sneaking women into the building. I can't believe this. Johnny tells Venus Mr. Carlson has an attorney for Venus and not to worry. As Johnny is speaking into the phone, we hear static. Time's up. Johnny and Venus can no longer hear one another. Venus is panicking. He begins yelling through the glass. No, no, not Mr. Carlson. You get the lawyer. You, no, not you, Jennifer. (laughs) And if you think about it, who at the station would you want hiring your lawyer? I'd trust Jennifer and 
Mama Carlson, but that's about it. Could you imagine the lawyer Herb would hire? Yeah, if Herb has a lawyer client, <laughs> a drive through maybe. Johnny <laughs> is miming for Venus to relax. He puts his hands together, kind of doing a namaste pose. Center yourself. He bows his head to Venus. Venus waves at Johnny. We're on Venus's side of the glass, so we can hear his comment. Going back to the old ballroom. <laughs> Johnny looks through the glass with a questioning expression. Venus begins to waltz with an invisible person. Johnny definitely shakes his head no to this. He begins boxing at the air. Remember, he's doing all this with an enormous beard. Venus nods his head and puts his hand on the glass. Johnny does the same from the other side. They then both walk away. The hands on the glass was kind of a touching moment of solidarity. Brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. We transition to Mr. Carlson's office where we see Mr. Carlson in his chair. He's talking to his lawyer, Frank Bartman. Bartman tells Mr. Carlson it's a classic case of circumstantial evidence. The camera scans the room and we see everyone, except for Johnny, Everyone is in the office to hear what the lawyer has to say. And when the camera pans across Herb, <laughs> whoa, Ooh, it's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Herb, he's a plaid nightmare. He is wearing a suit entirely of maroon, green, white, gray, orange plaid. I mean, it's the jacket and the pants. All are, are the same plaid material. A really aggressive plaid. This outfit makes you dizzy. He has on a white dress shirt and a brown tie with what looks like paint splotches of <laughs> tans and browns on it. He is wearing his white belt and shoes. Our attorney, Frank Bartman, is being played by Max Wright. And a big welcome back to Max. We first met Max here on WKRP when he represented the station against Wickerman's weight loss in the episode Pills. Hanging by a thread with a snowball's chance in hell. How, how do you mean that? A full bio on Max. Make sure to check that episode of the podcast. And get out your steno pads and pencils, fellow babies. It's time for Law 101 with Professor Frank Bartman. Mr. Carlson thought it was good news when Bartman said it was a classic case of circumstantial evidence. No, no, there's no good or bad in the law. In determining whether someone has actually broken the law, evidence must be brought forth. Direct evidence is simple. A number of people see the man commit the crime. Circumstantial evidence is something else. Again, it's a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. It's just, it, I'll t let me give you an example. There's an isolated house in the middle of a field a body on the living room floor, a bullet hole in the living room window, footprints in the newly fallen snow leading directly from the window to our man standing alone at the edge of the field. Is he guilty? Bailey has her hand raised and Bartman points at her. Maybe he just looked in the window after the crime. That is right. That is exactly <laughs> right. Do you understand that another piece of that puzzle is necessary? We need... Bartman puts his hand up to his ear to let them know he's waiting for someone to answer. Bueller? Bueller? Um, he's sick. They all just look at him, clueless. We need the smoking gun. And the smoking gun. Do you see how the, you see how the picture changes? If we find our man standing there still holding the smoking murder weapon in his trembling hand, add to this a little history of animosity between our man and the murder victim, the balance tips toward guilt, even though nobody has actually seen our man do anything. Les stands. He tells them he has a question. How did the man in the field keep his gun smoking so long after the shooting? <laughs> Les is looking at Mr. Bartman seriously. He's expecting an answer. What? Les! Les just don't go on smoking forever. Go on. Les sits back down. That really was an impressive scene on Max's part. He was just running that room. And he was getting into it. He was really teaching you them some law. Believed he was a lawyer. Yes. It takes Bartman a minute to gather his thoughts. <laughs> and remember where it was he left off after running into the brain of Les Nessman. Let me see. Uh, Sims has been arrested on the basis of a very few pieces of very circumstantial evidence. However, I don't believe that anyone has a smoking gun in this case. Jennifer reminds Bartman he said they could help. She asked him how. Well, I need you all as character witnesses. I need you all to testify 
that Mr. Sims had neither the motive nor the opportunity nor the inclination to commit this crime. That's no problem. I think I'd be wanting to use all of you, uh, with the possible exception of Mr. Nesman, <laughs> until things start to go bad and when we're looking for a mistrial. So that would make less the self-destruct button for the case. We transition to a courtroom. Venus is sitting at a table with his lawyer, and the rest of the crew is sitting behind him for support. Venus sees Jessica in the room. He makes eye contact with her briefly. The judge bangs his gavel to begin the preliminary hearing. The prosecutor stands to read off what Venus is being charged with. Mr. Sims is uh, charged with five counts of burglary, one count of possession of stolen property, also with conspiracy to commit a felony and pandering. The prosecutor then calls Jessica as the first witness. Judge H.P. Newcomb is being played by Jack Crucian. Jack's Canadian. He was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1922. Jack spent several years on the stage before getting into film and TV work. Jack worked a lot. He landed his first movie role in 1949. Between 49 and his retirement from performing in 1997, Jack will notch an incredible 225 actor credits. Many of those represent multiple episode appearances. Jack was nominated for a 1960 Academy Award for his role in the movie The Apartment. Jack died in April of 2002 at the age of 80 at his home in Chandler, Arizona. The prosecutor is being played by Robert Hooks. Robert Hooks was born Bobby Dean Hooks in 1937 in Washington, D.C. The name Bobby didn't suit the serious-looking 6'1 actor. He decided to act using the more formal Robert. Hooks's height and air of authority have led to a number of roles as either a doctor, attorney, or cop. His very first listed acting credit is as a detective on the 1963 series East Side, West Side. Hooks is probably best known as a series regular on the 1967 through 69 series NYPD. He played Detective Jeff Ward in 49 episodes. Hooks hasn't had a performing credit since 2011, but he does still have Agent Info listed on IMDb. Jessica walks to the witness box and takes a seat. She looks like a school teacher wearing a black skirt and a jacket with a high-collared white blouse buttoned to the neck. She isn't wearing much makeup at all. This does not look like the woman we met the other night in the station. Herb watches her walk up to the witness box. I like her. Bailey shoots Herb a look. The prosecutor asks Jessica to explain how she came to be in court today. I guess I'm here because I'm a victim of love. I loved Venus. I did anything he wanted me to. Uh, uh-oh. Venus has been set up. The prosecutor makes it clear Venus and Mr. Sims are the same person. Jessica goes on to explain Venus had a plan that would give them everything they wanted. Venus is looking at her with a shocked expression. And you went along with this plan? Yes. I did anything he told me. Venus drops his head into his hand as Jessica expands on her testimony. We burglarized a jewelry wholesaler. Jessica begins to cry a little. I'm so ashamed. Venus can't believe what he's hearing. Oh my goodness. She explains that Venus put on a pre-recorded tape of his show, so it would sound like he was on the air while the two of them committed the crime. Andy is watching his mouth hanging open. Oh my goodness. This is in trouble. Stinking girl. The prosecutor asks if this was the only time that she and Mr. Sims had committed a burglary. No. There were four other times. Ah! Four times! She's mine! She's mine! <laughs> Whoa, Venus explodes out I of his chair. I love that sound. Ah! <laughs> Bartman stands. He puts his hands on Venus's shoulders, pushing him back down in his chair as the judge bangs the gavel. The judge tells Bartman to control his client. I'm not going to sit here and let her lie. You have to. This is a court of law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scene fades to a commercial break. The rapid fire editing and the jump cuts from one witness to the next give these upcoming segments the hurried feel that Tim Reed had mentioned. You can tell they seem to have had more to say with each witness 
but time wouldn't allow it. We come back from commercial to find Officer Davies on the stand. The prosecutor asks the officer to tell everyone what they found in Venus's apartment after their search. The officer begins reading from a report. A collection of oriental porcelain, the remnants of an antique gold coin collection, $11,134 in cash, and the usual furnishings and accoutrements, which in this case all had a certain elegance. He doesn't say if the porcelain and coins were stolen. It sounds like the earring is the only thing they could tie to a robbery. So these must be Venus's personal collections? Having that much cash on hand seems a little weird, especially for somebody who is well known to be an investor. Using the inflation calculator, just over $11,000 in 1982 translates to about 34000 in buying power in 2022. I just did not get what that list meant. I don't know. I don't know. And maybe in the original script, the long they script, might have maybe expanded it would have explained that. But they didn't tie those things necessarily to a robbery. They didn't tell us if those were his personal things. It just they just kind of left it hanging. Seemed odd. That I they wish went we could that. see the original script. The longer that Tim cut Reed would be. Had and yeah, I'm sure it would answer a lot of questions. There is a time jump. The second officer is now on the stand. He was asked what else they'd found during this investigation. Well, at the time of Mr. Sims' arrest, he was wearing a diamond earring which upon further investigation proved to be one of the stolen items taken from a previous burglary at Brandt's Jewelers. The officer tells the court there had been four burglaries committed in exactly the same way during the past month. The prosecutor uses the term modus operandi, which is where we get M.O. It's Latin for mode of operation. The officer snickers. (laughs) Sergeant, you're laughing. Is something wrong? No, sir. Uh... I find the use of Latin funny. This seemed like a really forced attempt at a joke. It felt like a writer's room pitch. This segment was really heavy, so it felt like somebody said, hey, we need to punch this up with a laugh. Well, instead of lightening the moment, this quirky humor just seemed to really fall flat, in my opinion. I think they should have uh, scanned over to Johnny sitting in the audience and have him wearing his beard. That would have been a funny (laughs) punctuation. Yeah. Now it's Mr. Carlson's turn to take the stand. Carlson says Venus does the... I work the evening drive time shift in four days. This is news to us. We've always thought Venus was the nighttime guy. Nighttime guy would be on from seven or eight until midnight. We've always wondered how Venus was able to get off for group gatherings in the evenings. During Jennifer's show, we heard Dean the Dream was leaving the station to go to law school. At the time, it felt like Dean was the afternoon drive time guy. Maybe after Dean left, Venus got moved to the earlier time slot. When asked what time people usually go home, Art tells the court 5 p.m. The prosecutor points out Venus is alone at the station between 5 and 8. And who's coming in at 8 to relieve him? We don't know that person. This is ridiculous. Now, I I know Gordon Sims to be a a forthright and upstanding person. The prosecutor shows Carlson a composite drawing and asks if this is Mr. Sims. Carlson takes the picture and looks at it. This sort of looked like another. Prosecutor explains to the court this is a drawing done from an eyewitness description. The eyewitness claims to have seen this man running from the back of the office at Brant's Jewelry on the night of the robbery with a satchel in his hand at 7.15 p.m. We cut to Travis on the stand. The prosecutor asks if he noticed if Mr. Sims used a tape recorder that night. That's standard practice. No, 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 no. Just answer the question. Andy says yes. The lawyer asks Andy how long the recorder had been playing. Gosh, that's hard to say, but just roughly. Andy hesitates, not wanting to say. We know he was tracking it because he wanted to hear that legal ID. He finally says... An hour. Maybe. An hour? Maybe? Maybe more. Maybe. The prosecutor asks Andy if he saw Mr. Sims that night. Andy tells him yes, and the prosecutor wants to know for how long. Andy answers very quietly. Hmm? I said a few minutes. The prosecutor comes in for the kill. So you don't know where he was for an hour, maybe more. No. There's a cut to Bailey, who is now seated on the stand, and she is ready to fight. It's simple. 
She's a liar. Bailey shoots daggers with her eyes in Jessica's direction. The judge warns Bailey about making wild accusations. He tells her to confine her remarks in the matter to Mr. Sims. Bailey addresses the judge and pats his hand. Your Honor, I am sure you do your job very well. But unlike you, most people ignore their responsibility to justice. The law says you can kill baby seals. Bailey's veering off into one of her soapboxes. Just bash their heads in. So don't tell me about the law. It's the same with the dolphins. You know, flipper, ching. (laughs) Bailey uses her hand to make the motion of a dolphin jumping in and out of the water. I got to feel that Bailey was maybe a little stoned here. It kind of had that feel in the consultant when she was doing the stone character with Farfel. Yeah. This was that same kind of attitude. And I'm wondering, should we be concerned how much Bailey's hanging out with Johnny? This, <laughs> to me, almost sounds like Johnny's magic brownies talking. And speaking of Johnny, it's Johnny's turn. I know for a fact that Gordon Sims is a fine man who would never break the law under any circumstances. You have my word on that. Your word? That's right. Mr. Caravella, have you ever been arrested yourself? Johnny pauses, looks around. You can see he's not wanting to answer the question and then cut. And I think Howard Hessman's eyes were even bigger and sadder in that cut. They are so (laughs) tight on his face and he does not have his sunglasses on. And man, talk about these big hangdog eyes. So Jennifer has taken the stand. It's my feeling that Mr. Sims could never be involved in what you've suggested. Prosecutor tells Jennifer she sounds very sure of herself. She tells him she is. Even after hearing the overwhelming evidence. (laughs) The judge bangs his gavel. That will be enough of that. This witness has kindly consented to come down here and answer all your questions. You've done nothing but browbeat it. I will not have that sort of thing going on in my court. (laughs) Thank you, Porky. Don't you dare question Jennifer. Truly, we'd have been shocked and disappointed if Jennifer didn't know the judge. I love his nickname. Corky. (laughs) Corky. (laughs) Now Herb takes the stand. He is being questioned by the WKRP lawyer, Mr. Bartman. Bartman asks Herb if he and Mr. Sims get along. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, we have our differences. Most black and white people do. And you can disagree as long as you don't shoot anybody. Oh, Herb, (laughs) shut up. Mr. Bartman quickly jumps in. You're not saying that Mr. Sims carries a firearm. Oh, heck no. Venus doesn't even like guns. He almost shot Andy one night and has been sick about it ever. (laughs) Herb's talking about that tense Friday evening during the episode Nothing to Fear. We got the rod. The rod? Sure, rod, peace, gat. Iron, heater, trust, it's Andy, Venus. Put the gun down. But really, Herb should stop talking. Instead, he turns to the judge to make it clear it, it wasn't Venus's fault. Herb reaches up on the bench and he pats the judge's hand. He's got that crazy storyteller look he gets sometimes in his eye. See, uh, he thought that... Uh, and he was a burglar. See, we'd had a burglary in the station. The judge is trying to help him along. You mean there was another burglary in the same building? Right. <laughs> See? I've never seen in a courtroom setting so many people actually touch the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Les is in the chair. Bum, bum. The self-destruct has been activated. Let's say he did do it. <laughs> All right. You would still have to prove it. That's the law. Yes. Smoking gun. Yes. I was Les if he knows if Venus has ever been involved in a crime before. And he's talking to Les like he's talking to a crazy person. <laughs> he is. Just the one time when he broke into a photographer's studio to steal some photographs of a friend of ours who was naked at the time, but uh, that was different. 
He had to. It wasn't his idea. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Les has the memory of an elephant. He's going all the way back to season two's hour-long episode, Filthy Pictures. I think what we should do is turn ourselves in. <laughs> oh, no, AC. Uh, I know we were bad boys and we're going to hell for what we did, but uh, we can't go to no prison. I mean, I can deal with going to hell, but I can't deal with going to jail. <laughs> We cut to Venus on the stand. You've probably noticed from the editing and sets, but this episode was shot without a live studio audience. Looking at the composite drawing, Venus tells everyone it isn't him. When told it does look like him, he answers, Yes, it's a black man with a beard. Mr. Bartman tells him to explain to the court how he came to be there today. Venus tells them he feels like a character in a Kafka novel. I haven't done anything. I've never stolen anything in my entire life. The earpiece was from her. It was a gift. Now, I can't account for my whereabouts every minute of the day, but nobody can. I tell you, the worst thing I ever done in my life was I worked for Nixon once. <laughs> but it was only for an hour. And it was because... Because of what? Because this good-looking girl asked me. <laughs> Excuse me. Mr. Bartman grabs his chest as if he's having a heart attack. Venus cannot resist a pretty face. So Venus mentioned feeling like he was in a Kafka novel. This would be more of Hugh Wilson's intelligent script writing. Franz Kafka was a German-speaking bohemian novelist. He's considered one of the major figures in 20th century literature. The term Kafkaesque has entered the English language to describe someone in a situation like Venus. Examples of a Kafkaesque situation would be bureaucracies that overpower people in a nightmarish way put upon citizens in a Kafkaesque narrative are left with feelings of disorientation and helplessness. A Kafkaesque situation is marked by incredible complexity and bizarre or illogical behavior. Kafka's best-known works are the novels The Trial and The Castle. Kafka died in June of 1924, at the age of 40 from tuberculosis. The prosecutor now takes a turn at questioning Venus. Mr. Sims, why do you think Miss Langtree says that you committed these uh, burglaries? Venus tells the court it's because she can get a shorter sentence. All she has to do is turn in the ringleader, so she says it's me. After that, she'll be on the street in six months. And then I'm sure you'll find her and the real ringleader sipping pina coladas in the Caribbean. Meanwhile, I'll be trying to make the prison boxing team. <laughs> the judge bangs his gavel and informs everyone he's considered the evidence carefully. He finds the prosecution has substantiated a case against Mr. Sims, even though it is primarily circumstantial evidence, and he is sending this one on to the grand jury. If it please, Your Honor, uh, I, I'd like to request that Mr. Sims remain free on his own recognizance. Denied. The judge sets bail at $200,000 and tells Venus... He must go back with the officers to county until bail is arranged. Oh, well. <laughs> we cut to a hallway in the courthouse where Venus and the officer are waiting for the elevator to arrive. Venus is in handcuffs once again, and Detective Alcorn is holding Venus's upper arm. We can see Jessica and her guards standing behind Venus. Venus turns to the officer. I'm innocent. Yeah. Well, I've seen a lot of guilty men go free, but I've never seen an innocent one go in yet. Just don't happen that way, my friend. Venus closes his eyes and he begins moving his lips, silently praying. What are you doing? Some Muslim thing? Venus tells him he is praying to his God. Yeah? Well, a lot of good that's going to do you now. The elevator doors open. Venus and Jessica get on with their guards. We hear an instrumental version of High Hopes playing inside the elevator. Just before the door is closed, someone calls for them to hold the elevator. An African-American man in handcuffs gets on with his officer. Detective Alcorn's eyes get wide. He looks at Jessica and sees her reaction to this new guy who just got on the elevator. Alcorn looks at the officer with him and asks what he's got. The officer tells Alcorn he's in for burglary. Jewelry, sir? Uh-huh. The camera backs up and we can see... This man is Venus's doppelganger. 
The officer escorting Venus's lookalike is being played by Tony Lucas. You only see him for a literal second, but Tony Lucas did speak as he brought bad Venus onto the elevator. If you speak on WKRP, you get a credit. Tony is listed on IMDb as playing the sheriff in this episode. This was only his second listed role. He'd had a small part in a made-for-TV movie the previous year called for ladies only, about male strippers. It had been filmed almost entirely in Atlanta, so it's possible Tony knew Hugh or some of the Atlanta crew from WKRP. He would go on to have a total of 13 acting credits. Eleven of those would happen in the decade from 1981 through 1992. The music in this scene is, as usual, making a comment about the scene. We hear a cheesy, tinkly Muzak version of High Hopes playing in the elevator. The song had been popularized by Frank Sinatra. It was introduced by Sinatra and child actor Eddie Hodges in the 1959 film A Hole in the Head. Sinatra also recorded a single version with a children's choir instead of Hodges on the chorus. Anyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant, but he's got... High hopes, he's got high hopes, he's got high apple pie in the sky. A different take, also without Hodges, would appear on his 1961 album, All the Way. Sinatra would also re-lyric the song so it could be used as the theme for John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential bid. K-E-double-N-E-D-Y Jack's the nation's favorite guy Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got high hopes 1960's the year for his The single version was released in June of 1959. It would peak at number 30 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. High Hopes also goes to number 6 on the U.K. singles chart. We get one quick shot of the two men standing side by side in the elevator. Tim Reed is playing both parts. If you freeze on the frame and look at the left arm of Criminal Venus, you can see where some of the texture of the elevator wall is bleeding over his arm. They don't hold on the scene for long because the split-screen effect is not great. Tim is doing a good job giving both characters different personas. Venus still has his eyes closed and he's still silently praying. He has not seen that his prayers have just been answered. Alcorn closes his eyes and pinches the top of his nose as if warding off a headache. Oh, my goodness. We come back to the bullpen for our capper scene. Venus is sitting on the desk talking with Johnny, Les, Andy, and Mr. Carlson. The guy confessed, yeah, but he's not the real ringleader. No, it was the woman, Jessica. It was all her idea. He was just some poor sucker who would do anything for a good-looking woman. Not like you, huh? That's right. He practically puts you in San Quentin. Yeah. You're lucky. Venus tells them luck had nothing to do with it. It was hardcore prayer. A miracle, pure and simple, my friend. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Right thumb. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. A second Nessman bandage alert. <laughs> They work hard to keep the show based in Ohio, but sometimes they do make mistakes, like just now when Andy mentioned Venus almost wound up in San Quentin. San Quentin is the oldest prison in California and one of the most famous prisons in the United States, but it would be impossible for Venus to serve time there. You have to be a prisoner of the state of California in order to become an inmate at San Quentin. Most likely, had he done time, Venus would have been a resident at the Lebanon Correctional Institute in Lebanon, Ohio, 
It opened in 1960 and sits about 32 miles north of Cincinnati. Les tells everyone he's often thought he had a double. Imagine that, two of them. <laughs> Les goes on to share a theory of his. I think there's a, another universe just like ours right next door with all our doubles. A double station, double desks, double doors. Double dates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Johnny tells them all he thinks he met his double once. Oh, yeah? What did he look like? <laughs> Venus is smiling. He tells everyone he sure has learned his lesson. Are you prayer? That and never listen again to a good-looking woman. And on cue, the door from the studio hallway opens. Jennifer sticks her head through. Venus, would you do me a favor? Coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it for circumstantial evidence a serious serious episode but still fun to watch yeah but i do feel like it was rushed and i'd like to have seen the original script and what was cut seen that long what cut was changed if they had been on a streaming service instead of restricted by the 25 <laughs> minutes of a sitcom yes. format i think we'd have had a lot more fun stuff so that's going to do it for this week's WKRP cast. What is our episode next week, Donna? Next week, we will be talking about fire. A fire alarm sends the crew home early. However, Herb and Jennifer get trapped on the elevator going down. Herb then tells Jennifer about some rumors he's been spreading about them being together. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRPCast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPCast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger! <laughs> <laughs>